0: Hello, boys and girls of Credit Union Land. Welcome to the fourth episode of the CU Insight Experience, our podcast. My name is Randy Smith. I am one of the co-founders and the publisher of CUinsight.com, and it is my job on the show to have conversations with the best and the brightest of the credit union community. I get to pick their brains and find a few nuggets that we can all learn from. I must start by saying that my guest on this episode is my favorite guest, my favorite contributor, my favorite person in the credit union community, and my human. Nothing against Jim, Gigi, and Dan, but she is my human and my partner, so they just can't compete. Miss Jill Nowacki is the president and CEO of the Credit Union League of Connecticut. Instead of doing this interview at our dining room table or on the island in our kitchen, we decided to record it in Key West. After Jill had finished a talk to credit union CEOs on diversity, I knew that Jill and I would have a blast on this. Many of the things we talk about in this episode are conversations that we've had at home. One of her answers caught me completely off guard. I'm sure you'll be able to notice when you hear my reaction to it. So listen through for that one. It's a lot of fun. I know Jill will be a regular on the CU Insight experience. She is one of the most thoughtful, kind and intelligent people I know. I am one lucky dude. We talked about whole human integration at work. we talked about diversity and leadership, expanding the economic capacity of communities and people in those communities and much much more. So without further ado, I give you my conversation with Miss Jill Noaki. Enjoy. <laughs> Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
0: And thanks for allowing me to do this while we're on vacation in Key West. So, anyways, let's just jump right into the questions. Something you and I have talked about a lot is whole human integration at work. You wrote an article on it, Being Human is Not a Liability. It was published on CU Insight, so we will link to that in the show notes below. If you could, will you explain what whole human integration is to our listeners?
1: So, whole human integration is something that I thought about as I was looking more and more at the use of artificial intelligence in the workplace, and particularly how credit unions are starting to automate a lot of their processes. And it came to this idea that in order to get the most out of the data we have and the processes we have in place, we also need to have humans that can take care of that. And the skills that humans bring to the table are incredibly different than what we can now automate. The other part that goes along to that, though, is making sure we recognize that what is human about our employees is what differentiates them from the robots and that those strengths need to be acknowledged and integrated and worked with in the workplace. So when we have people coming to work who are also parents and hobbyists and do things outside of work in addition to being employees, we have to recognize that and give them the room to be humans while at work.
0: That is true. We've talked about that quite a bit. Do you think that's even more important in the hyper-competitive recruiting environment and work environment that we, we see right now with full employment?
1: Absolutely, and I think that's the reason why we need to. You know, We're not in the industrial revolution anymore. I think we may be on the cusp of a different type of employment revolution. I don't know what it would be called, but we are definitely in a situation where employees have the opportunity, people have the opportunity to craft their lives much more how they want to through The example I cite the most is if you could be a teller for $15 an hour who's on a super strict schedule, or you could go drive Uber and do it when you want to and change your hours when your kids are sick, you're absolutely going to choose the one that gives you the flexibility and the trust and the ability to set your own hours. And right now, the way credit unions employ tellers, frontline staff, that flexibility isn't there in most cases. So I do think we'll see some changes with that. And I think credit unions are going to need to figure it out if they want to be able to keep employing people in those roles.
0: Well, I know over the summer when you were laid up from foot surgery, you actually, quite a bit of Ubers, and you've told me the story before of the guy who worked for PepsiCo, and he was basically making more money driving an Uber part-time, so it's interesting. Can you give any examples of whole human integration in action, or credit union specifically, doing a good job of this?
1: So you've told me a lot about reading the book, Let My People Go Surfing, which is from the Patagonia CEO, sorry, founder. That's a great example of a company that is living their values consistently across all channels. So in addition to, I think many people probably saw recently, they got their tax refund back and ended up donating it all to causes to protect the environment, I think, uh, which is consistent with what they do. In addition to that, though, it sounds like they flex their work days and their employees' hours to let them go out and enjoy what the brand stands for as far as out To let their people go surfing. So, <laughs> I'll have to read the book. Yeah. <laughs> to switch
0: gears a little bit, something else I know you're, you're deeply passionate about is expanding the economic capacity of communities and people. What does meaningful community development and member development look like to you?
1: So yes, I am firmly believing that credit unions' primary role is to expand the economic capacity of the individuals and the communities that they serve. And what that means to me is that when credit unions are looking at writing new programs or products or services or engaging with their community, it's not about just writing a sponsorship check for the local Little League team. It's about trying to make an investment into that community that pays forward. So it's increased access to affordable capital. It's providing match savings programs that get people to receive their next level education where they can go out and get jobs where they make more money. So it's the investments in opportunities and areas that allow the people in the community to do more themselves as well. To me, that's what the meaningful community engagement looks like or meaningful community interaction looks like is being able to connect with others, whether it's the members themselves or the community organizations, in order to help build the community's complete capacity for economic well-being greater.
0: I think you just kind of answered this, but is there a difference between the community development and the member development?
1: I think it can tie together really well, but when I think about member development, I think about the products and services that the credit union actually builds. When I think about the community development, I think more about what may happen in the broader community. So if you have a community where affordable housing is a really big issue, you may work with individuals on providing counseling or down payment savings assistance programs. But then you work with other organizations in the community that are addressing that problem as well. So maybe the community outreach is in connecting with a local housing agency. And maybe there's even a third kind of more for-profit arm where you're beginning to fund lending programs for developers to put more local housing in place. too. So it's kind of an all-encompassing way where you start with the community problem that's there and then work towards solving that in order to make the community a healthier place.
0: So, on a previous show, I read the report that Gigi Highland did talking about credit unions and the healthcare system offering whole health programs. Would that be a community development program or?
1: Absolutely, and obviously Gigi's the expert on that. I'm more familiar with the idea of how education and poverty can link together, but I think what Gigi's found in her report, and she's clearly the expert on it. But I think what she found is there's a really clear link between poor financial health and poor overall physical health with people too. And so one of the findings in that that was really surprising to me is that if you're living in poverty or living kind of on the margin, you won't go get preventative health care. And if that's the case, then things get worse and end up costing far more. Or if you can't make ends meet, you don't pay for health insurance. And then when a problem arises you don't have health insurance to cover that. So absolutely I think there's a connection. I think there's also a connection with the ability to access things that contribute to healthy living conditions. So access to fresh fruits and vegetables, living in an environment that can be appropriately climate controlled for what's going on outside, like having air conditioning or heat, and living in places that, you know, don't have mold in them that don't create like asthma in little children too. So,
0: so that's the community side yeah. also obviously. Yeah. Is this something that you see starting at individual credit unions, or is it systematic?
1: I think individual credit unions can and should do it with the communities they serve. And I think as far as system-wide, I do think it should be a bigger part of the conversations we're having, too. Okay. So as
0: a system, you think this is an area that we're dropping the ball a little bit? (laughs) Not to call anybody out.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, As a system, I don't think that that has quite moved to a point yet where it's become prominent and a major area of focus. As an example, I think this is the type of thing they have a breakout session for, not a keynote session for. And so I think that it would be interesting to see us move toward that. And I think it would be an excellent way for credit unions to really differentiate from other financial services providers that are out there.
0: Is there anybody, do you want to give a shout out? Is there somebody who's doing this well?
1: There are many people who are doing it well. I think that... We see great examples. I know at the state level, I've always been really impressed with, and of course, my career started in Montana, so it's easy. It's kind of my my home place, and my heart is there. But what the Montana Credit Union Network has built as far as statewide opportunities for their credit unions to really engage with, specifically in this case, it's a student loan program where they built a public-private partnership in student lending where the credit unions were providing match savings accounts to people wanting to go to college for the first time. System-wide, I think we know and acknowledge that the student loan burden right now that uh, people today hold is is crazy and definitely a crisis level. And I think what they did as a state was come together and try to solve that problem with something that was meaningful and has made a difference in Montana.
0: That's awesome. So how can this make credit unions more relevant and increase the long-term viability of the
1: system? When we take efforts that expand the economic capacity of those we serve, we create healthier members. So we have members who are more financially sound, more financially stable. We are accessing people right now and moving them toward the next level of financial stability. So when we build a a better base of members, it increases the likelihood of the financial success for the credit union, too. It also can increase these feelings of ownership and loyalty that our members have that may cause them to stay with credit unions rather than go to alternative choices.
0: Makes sense. This is a question that I just added. What are the current beliefs held by credit unions that you think will significantly change in the foreseeable
1: future? So I think there are two widely held beliefs right now that I reject both of them, and they're completely different. So one is the idea that fintech startups are going to ruin the credit union industry. I don't think that fintechs are something to be scared of. I think they're an opportunity to partner with, and I think they could even serve as inspiration because so often, and this kind of ties into my next thought that I think is a falsely held belief for credit unions, but... We get so terrified that some fintech startup is going to come in and take us out of business. And they're all these little startup companies that many of them are starting in their parents' basements where they're not coming out with loads of capital. They're coming out with great ideas and great innovation, but they don't have scale when they launch, and yet we're terrified of them. Simultaneously, we're also saying, oh my gosh, if my credit union's not, you know, 500 million, 1 billion, 10 billion in assets, we're not relevant because we're not big enough. So I think that that's almost a contradiction to this idea that fintechs, they're going to come in and be nimble and take us all over and put us all out of business, but we're too small, we can't thrive and be relevant. And I think we could see some really cool things happen if some of our credit unions, including the small ones, sort of realign their thinking and try to be more like that fintech startup when they move forward with new programs.
0: I think you and I have both talked about it before that we've seen fintechs kind of change in the sense that not as many are trying to go directly to consumers. They're actually like, we need the credit unions or you know, we need the the members. Quite honestly, yeah. I think
1: when the first few people moved onto the landscape, and you know, I should be careful because I think Quicken Loans is like technically a fintech startup, and certainly PayPal is, and they've reached some scale, I guess. And so, um, but I think a lot of the early innovators who came up with products and programs in fintech thought oh, you know, this is going to be amazing and I'm going to build the next PayPal. And then as they got into it, they realized, I have a great product. I have something that's meaningful to a niche group of people, but I'm not going to become the next PayPal. I can make this product available through partnerships too. And I think that's the mindset that credit unions are going to adopt more widely is that they too can get into those partnerships and make some amazing things happen.
0: We've talked about that a lot. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit. This is the the leadership and life hack part of the episode. What was it about credit unions that inspired you to take the job as president and CEO of the Credit Union League of Connecticut?
1: I'm really excited about what credit unions can do for their communities and how they can serve their members. And I think there's tremendous potential at the state level for credit unions to come together with meaningful collaboration and introduce programs that can solve the economic problems in a state. And so I was excited about having the chance to be able to help try to bring those credit unions together and move them forward into that place.
0: Has that inspiration changed with time on the job?
1: The inspiration hasn't changed. The approach maybe has a little bit. It's been about five years, just a little over five years, that I've been in Connecticut. And when I started in my job interview, one of the questions they asked me was, you know, half of our credit unions are losing money right now. What are you going to do to help that? So two or three of my five years, it was, it was tough. We were having tough financial performance. We were having tough member growth. The good news in Connecticut is that's turned around a lot. We've seen a lot of improvements with that. But it definitely, I think, thinking I was going to walk in the first day and be like, no programs and ideas, and everybody would be right there with me. It didn't really work out that way. There was a lot more necessity to focus on earnings focus on increasing compliance burden, and some of those day-to-day areas of focus keep those bigger collaborations from happening and taking off.
0: Speaking of change, I'm going to stick on that for a little bit here. You mentioned Montana earlier, where you got your start in credit unions. How have credit unions changed since 2001 when you started in
1: Montana? I spent almost half my life in credit unions now, and to answer the question about how credit unions have changed since I started it has me kind of stop and wonder how much have credit unions changed versus how much has my perception changed, and personally, I've also changed a lot since I was 22, and um, the way I think has changed a bit too, so I'm not sure how much of the change has been me versus the change being credit unions. At that time, I had a much different role too. I was doing marketing for credit unions. And most of what I did was producing these eight-and-a-half-by-eleven two-sided newsletters that credit unions would mail out with their statement inserts. And we would check to see if members read them by, like, hiding account numbers in there so that they can then call the credit union if they found their account number for an extra $5 deposit. Right about that time, you know, email marketing was starting to hit the stage. And I remember being terrified that if email marketing took off, I would be irrelevant and could never be employed again because my entire career experience was credit union related at age 22. So I think that I've seen a lot change in credit unions and my outlook as far as what we can do and keep up with has changed a lot too. Okay, as you
0: know, I'm a big fan of your writing. Often you write about diversity in leadership teams, you know, giving more people a seat at the table and everybody should follow you on Instagram as well. As a CEO that happens to be female, what do you see as the biggest roadblock to leadership teams basically having a look more like the general public?
1: So this is great because I just gave a talk on this this morning, so I have all sorts of statistics in my mind for it. But something that surprised me is I was doing research for this talk on balanced teams, and I completely see it, though, in practice, too. And it's this idea that 50% of male respondents to a survey say that a team is well-balanced or women are well-represented on a team if one out of ten members are female. So that's 10%, not 50%, and, and not actually balanced. I think that... What that feeds to or what that supports is the idea that I think the biggest roadblock to gender balance is a blind spot to it, where if we think that 1 out of 10 is balanced, if that's what we see and therefore we perceive there's balance, we aren't going to try to solve that problem because we think we did it. Good for us. And I think we need to identify both the blind spots are there and then also the unconscious and conscious biases that exist in trying to move that toward a place of.
0: Is there any quick tip that you just, to get the conversation going, you want to throw out there?
1: Well, to get the conversation going, I just want to say don't be afraid to have the conversation. I think you know the most well-intended men who I talk to will say, I don't feel like it's my place. I'd like to help and I'd like to do something, but what do I know about being in this situation? What do I know about solving this problem? There are so many things that I could say and could suggest Starting the conversation is critically important. And then what research has found to be true is that the single best way to get a woman on her best career path possible is for her to be mentored by a man. So there, unfortunately, has been some backlash in light of Me Too where men are actually increasingly less likely to mentor a female subordinate or colleague and so, overcoming that fear, pushing through, and looking for opportunities as a male leader where you can mentor a female subordinate or colleague is a fantastic first step.
0: Good start. As a leader, is there something that your team has heard you say so many times they can finish your sentence?
1: I hope that what they've heard me say more than anything else is thank you for all you do for Connecticut's credit unions. 2018 has been a tough year for my team, and we've been really lean and putting out a ton of work. So my team's been superhuman in that capacity and the work they've done. So I hope they hear me say thank you a lot.
0: Hopefully they're listening. <laughs> yeah. Has there been a piece of advice or a life lesson that you've held on to go back to often?
1: So when I started out, that job I was doing, producing all those newsletters in Montana's credit union, I had a lot of ideas for how we could do different marketing. And my supervisor at the time said to me... You know what I've realized is that every time you have a new idea, it means more work for me, and you'll outgrow this enthusiasm one day, I promise so it was it was a bit frustrating to me, and I was talking with the, the CEO then, who's still the CEO now, Tracy and Tracy and I were in a conversation, and I told her about some of the ideas I had, and she said, "Well, why don't you just go for them?" And I said, "Well, I think the supervisor kind of wants me to be a little more cautious and be a little more hesitant and Tracy's advice was do it anyway and let the chips fall. And so I find that even today when I end up in a situation where I sort of second guess a new initiative I want to start or how I want to move forward and think, oh, well, maybe it's too hard, maybe there's not enough time, I end up self-talking myself with that, "Ah, let the chips fall, we'll see what happens. So I go back to that a lot. And I still have all that enthusiasm too. (laughs) I haven't outgrown it yet. (laughs)
0: Enthusiasm has not not weighed at all, trust me. (laughs) Uh, When you run into a wall, is there something that you do to, whether it's take a step back and, you know, get some different eyes on it?
1: So as you're probably more than aware, I'm an analyzer. So I spend a lot of time in my own head and with my problems. And typically by the time I come across an actual problem, I've already figured out 30 different perspective solutions to it. And I tend to fall into this trap of thinking, if I could just think about it a little more, I'll come up with the solution. So recently, and here'd be another great guest for your show, is Leo Ardeen, who's the CEO at United Teletech Financial in New Jersey. He came and did a session for my executive education program we put on where he did a mindfulness and emotional intelligence session for our upcoming leaders in Connecticut. And he shared this visual during the session about this idea of like a brain. So visualize a root-bound, pot-bound plant that's potted but in too small of a pot and the roots are all tangled up on itself and tightened up and talked about how if we don't stop and give our brain space. That's essentially what happens with our thoughts. And so I do try to keep it, that in mind and look for ways where I can create a little space in there, like take that pot out, let the roots stretch out a bit. And I do find that running gives me that help when I'm looking for it.
0: Oh uh, So good. Anyways, if you have a free day, nothing on the calendar. What passions do you have outside of credit unions? I mean, what do you do to recharge?
1: Thinking about this, it's hard because my first thought when you say if you have a free day is, I'm a working mom, I don't have a free day. And I'm a big fan of this idea of work-life integration instead. And I think that goes back a little bit to that, like recognizing the humans that we work with and what their needs are. But I do get energy from time with my son when it's the right kind of time. Too often, I think what I end up getting into a struggle with on a regular day is going through this routine of, you know, pressuring on homework and trying to make sure everything gets done and making sure all the chores get done and and thinking, well, you know, we'll have fun once all the work gets done. So I do try to step back from that and try to introduce other sort of activities and opportunities that can be more memorable. But I do find that for me the way to find that time and that space is I do have to remove myself from the situation. I, it's hard for me to do it when I'm at home because when I'm at home I always feel like there's something – calling me, dragging me. So I do find that I'm far better when we get out of town and bring Crosby with us. <laughs> we
0: do like to travel. So. <laughs> <laughs> As a leader, how do you make sure that your message stays fresh to your team? And then in your position, how do you make sure that the league's message stays fresh to credit unions?
1: So it's important to have a fresh message. And though, I also think it's important to make sure that that message resonates. There's that a whole, like, yep, you have to hear something seven times before it hit. My bigger fear is we wouldn't have a consistent message for long enough that that message is what resonates with people. I'm concerned that the whether it's you know my team or it's my credit unions or it's my politicians that when they think Connecticut's credit unions, they don't think of the same kind of message consistently. So I'm really in a point where I would prefer to be coming up with that kind of easy clear value statement, and then I'll worry about how to keep that fresh. At this point, <laughs> at this point, I think I want to make sure it, it lands in a way that's meaningful. I feel like the best area so far in that is by using really personal stories. That seems to be the thing that helps people connect. It's definitely what works with our lawmakers. When we go in and we talk to them about how you know, there's a provision that will allow credit unions to be able to help teachers who live in multifamily housing that's something that they'll remember and ask us about the next time we come in their office. Okay. Uh, in a way that as uh, saying, if you could please give us one to four family lending, that'd be great, is not as resonant at all.
0: It's the actual telling them about the teacher. Yeah. Right? The yes. individual. It's so
1: Humanizing it. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, no,
0: that's true. Okay. Favorite part, and you've heard me putting these together, so now you get to go through the rapid fire questions. And as you know, they're rapid fire. That means the questions are, but the answers don't have to be. Do you have any daily routines that if you don't do at the end of the day, you just feel off? You feel like the day was a little bit off? As you know, I journal. I'm going to keep mentioning moleskin until they send us free ones. (laughs) But what is it for you?
1: I have an ideal day for sure. It goes back a little bit to that kind of working mom CEO thing. It doesn't always play out how I want it to. A perfect day would be waking up and immediately going running or doing yoga and then coming home, drinking coffee and journaling, and then my son deciding to wake up after I finish doing all of those things. That happens about never. Um, so, but that's a great way for me to start the day really balanced. What I find works on those days when I don't get that in is just being able to say, okay, what are the three wins I can have today? And then making sure those things get done so that at the end of the day, I can reflect back and still feel like it was a good day.
0: The random question, and I know the one that I think you were stressing about the most. So, <laughs> what's the best album of all time? Oh,
1: I did stress about this. I'm not cool. I don't know cool music. <laughs> it's a bummer. So, music for me is probably far less about what somebody who's a musician would say makes good music. It's really nostalgic for me. And so... As much as I thought I was going to answer that it was uh, Taylor Swift's Reputation album, because I was at a really happy place in my life when I played that over and over for four months in my car. Um, But but, um, I think it's probably Tim McGraw's Everywhere. And the reason for that, it was really significant to me. um, It was the time when I moved from high school into college. So it's a big, like, life change. I was starting to feel independent and grown up and meeting my new friends who are still my good friends today. And then in 2008, it was actually also The Green Grass Grows was the song that my dad chose to play at my mom's funeral, too. So it's kind of had lasting staying power and nostalgia for my life, too.
0: We have a stack of books and it just keeps growing. That's been recommended to us, other people have told us about. So it's been fun asking this question on the podcast. Is there a book that you have gifted over time that you recommend that you think everybody should read?
1: So yes, The Alchemist is the book that I encourage people to read. Professionally, though, I've been spending a bit of time with Brené Brown. And recently, her newest one that I've read is called Dare to Lead. And that one was so filled with so many just aha moments for me, particularly in the work she did around like understanding what your personal values are, define those personal values, and then hold on to those two personal values and craft your life around those two values in a way that is absolutely just relentless. I actually love that book so much that I put a challenge out to my team that if they would read the book and then if they would come up with two ideas from the book for how our team could improve how we're serving, there was an incentive. And I love the book so much that I even put myself out there and said if they came up with a third idea that was specifically related to how I personally could improve as a leader, there was an additional incentive for that. I do hope they'll come back with some stuff because there's some great tidbits in there and some really, I think, good stuff to apply as leaders at work, but good stuff for individuals to apply to their lives too.
0: It's a good book. You had me read it. <laughs> When you hear the word success, who's the first person that comes to mind?
1: Well, I have this good friend from college. Her name is Genevieve Crepe. And whenever I hear the word success, I think of Genevieve. And it's because early on, shortly after my son was born, she and I met for dinner. In our lives at that time, I had a pretty big job. I was a mom. I was married. I had a house. And kind of felt like I was racking up all the things that you're supposed to have for success. And she was going through her life and all that she was doing, too. And she was actually making some big professional transitions at that point that would give her a lot more time to to travel and to, you know, spend time training for Ironman races. And she was just changing her life a lot. And as we were having this conversation, she said, as I've gotten older, I've learned that individuals have different success metrics. And so every time I found myself feeling like I'm doing things to check them off the list, it's given me that moment to be like, is this my success metric or is this what I think I should be doing and reevaluate from that perspective?
0: I mean, this ties right into that for sure. But as you've gotten older, what's become more important to you and what's become less important to you?
1: What's more important to me now is it's me. It's the ability to define my time and making sure that I'm spending that time on the things that I value and that are important to me and for me I, I recognize that that's you know seeing the world I want to go out and have the chance to be inspired by what else is out there and where I see that importance kind of come out the most is in like how I spend my money for example and so at a point five years ago I was far more focused on what my house would look like and how that would be and now I'm far more focused on I, you know, how can I use a house that's a good base and that takes care of my needs but that provides me with the disposable income to go out and see the world and to spend time knowing what else is out there and to spend time when I'm home rather than worrying about things like lawn maintenance and housekeeping, being able to really focus on time with the people I love.
0: Is there anything that you think of that has really just become much less important?
1: I think it's material possessions from that perspective. So I definitely still, you know, I still have an attraction toward certain luxuries. But I think I've become much better at sort of taking the critical eye to examine, is this something I want because I want it? Or is this something I want because I feel like it's what I'm supposed to want and do at this point in my life and my career as I move forward?
0: So to add one more Tim Ferris question, because now I'm just so intrigued by this, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self?
1: I would have told the 22-year-old marketer that she'd be able to keep up with the marketing. She'd figure it out. <laughs> but um, the advice that I would give back, the life advice I would give back, and I'd certainly give it to anyone who I talk to right now, is you know defining those values, defining those two personal core values, and making sure you're really looking at it through the filter of not what you think people want you to say, not like if your family found... Your list? Are they going to disown you because they weren't high enough up on it? But really, what is it that that drives you and pushes you and, and you know lights you up every day? What is it that brings you forward?
0: That is a great way to end. Thank you again so much for being on the show. Do you have any final thoughts or asks of our listeners?
1: Yeah, I think the final thought I would share, I just would reiterate the importance of knowing and being able to define the, the values that someone has. I was reading an article in the New Yorker. I actually read it, so I think I should be able to keep my magazine subscription now. And um, I, it was an interesting article with a, a professor from University of Michigan, and she was talking about the way to reach social equality, economic equality, is by being able to better understand the values that are brought by different people to different areas. And that as a society, we so often – look at just a very limited number of things that we consider to be high value contributions. And the reality is that there are so many different ways to contribute. And by us as individuals being able to recognize what our values are, the value we add to the world, and by being able to look and recognize those in others too, I think is really critically important. It goes back to that whole allowing the pursuit of being a whole human in life and that whole human integration. So I, I guess the final ask would just be to, to know those values, know what it is that lights you up as a human. The world needs that. They need, they need more lights in it. And so that, that would be the ask is do what lights you up.
0: That is the perfect way to end. Do more of what lights you up. Is at Jill now on Twitter, the best way to get a hold of you if people have additional questions.
1: At Jill now is great. My email address directly is fantastic too. I'll, I'll, Take text messages, phone calls. Yeah, anything is good. You have that like, contact information. Well,
0: we will link to all of that in the show notes. Again, thank you very much for being on the podcast. And I hope everybody has a great day. Thank you. Enjoy.